Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by actor and comedian Kamel Nanjiani. You might have seen his work in The Big Sick, Eternals, or the hit HBO series Silicon Valley. His latest performance comes in the sprawling true crime saga Welcome to Chippendales, which charts the rise and fall of Steve Banerjee, an Indian-American entrepreneur who founded the world's greatest male stripping empire. You can watch the first three episodes of the show on Hulu right now, with the rest of the series premiering weekly on Tuesdays through January 3rd. As you'll hear at the top, Ninjani and I met back in 2017, just before The Big Sick debuted in theaters. That film, in case you forgot, told the love story of Kamal and then-girlfriend-now-wife Emily Gordon, who was suddenly rushed into a medically-induced coma at age 27. The film was met with great enthusiasm out of Sundance and landed one of the largest deals in the history of the festival. And so today, we reflect on the changes he's experienced in the intervening five years. We also discuss his upbringing in Pakistan, his early work as a stand-up comic in Des Moines and Chicago, his very public physical transformation, and how he continues to tell rich and complex immigrant stories through both Apple TV's Little America and now Welcome to Chippendales. So, without further ado, this is Kamel Nanjiani. 
Kamil Nanjani. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm excited to have you. Oh, I'm glad to be back. This is the first time you've been on the show. But we've spoken before. We have spoken before. But it wasn't here. It wasn't here. It was at like a coffee shop or something. We were at a coffee shop. Right. It was five years ago. Is that when it was? We were doing an interview for Playboy. Is that what it was? That's right. God, I know we've spoken, but I didn't realize it was for... I forgot what it was for. Uh -huh. If you'd asked me, have you ever done an interview with Playboy? I would have said no. <laughs> but I have done one, I guess. Fittingly, with this new show of yours, it was right. an interview for Playboy. Yeah, all my branding is coalescing. It, it's finally coming together. Oh my God, there's a vision. I've got it. I didn't think you had it. It's smut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this was right after Big Sick came out? This or? is in 2017. Wow, okay. I remember that year. Feels like a lifetime ago. Why don't we talk about this new project of yours? It's called Welcome to Chippendales. It starts in 1980 Los Angeles, where you play Steve Banerjee, an Indian immigrant who spends his days working at a gas station and his nights dreaming of being the next Hugh Hefner. Then one day... He decides it's about time to turn those dreams into his reality. Why don't we uh, take a listen to this early scene from the pilot of the show? There was a reason I invited you over today. Oh? Of all my managers, you're the best. Thank you, sir. Hardworking, reliable, clever. So is everything to your liking? Yes, the mutton saga is divine. Good, good, good. Thank you so much for this. My pleasure. Which is why I want to promote you. Promote me? To general manager. I want you to oversee operations to all of my seven gas stations. Oh, I greatly appreciate your offer. But I'm afraid I can't accept. What? I've been meaning to speak with you about this for some time now, sir. I have made the decision to leave. But what will you do? How much money have you saved? As of Monday, $44,000. $44,000? How is that possible? Actually, it's $44,155. I rounded down because I didn't want to brag. But you pay me $2.60 an hour, multiply that by 70 hours a week, 52 weeks a year by five years, that comes to $52,000, of which I have managed to save 90%. 90? I have no social life to speak of, sir. All I do is sleep and work. For food, I eat expired sandwiches from the station. If you have $44,000, that's nearly enough to own your own gas station. That's true. So why not just work with me for a few more years? Sir, I do not want a gas station. What do you mean you don't want a gas station? That was my dream when I came here. But that was seven years ago. My goals have changed. I have changed. When it comes to Steve, who we just heard, there's no footage of him that actually exists, right? Yeah, there's really barely anything. There's moments here and there, but I think he was pretty uncomfortable on camera. So there's footage of... Some of the other characters, this is footage of Nick DeNoia. There's a lot of footage of Nick DeNoia, a lot of footage of those early dancers, but there is barely anything on Steve. And, and those who did know him kind of all have varying accounts of who he was. That's right. People had different experiences of him. So who is he to you? 
Well, so for me, the job was never to try and recreate the real guy for many reasons. One, there's no way to know he's gone. And like you said, people had differing accounts of him. And I'm not playing someone, you know, that people really know. So for me, the job was just to create the character from the script. We know what he did, and we know some of these different types of things that people say about him. Some people said he was wonderful. Some people said he was terrifying. Everyone said he was obsessed with money. Everyone said he was a little bit awkward. But the things that people disagree on are some people had a really wonderful experience with him, and some people thought that he was a very, very scary man. You said that this was by far the most challenging job I've ever done. Yeah. Why was that? So the show gets more and more emotionally difficult as it goes. And then the last two episodes are just very, very, you know, it's a lot of emotionally heavy scenes all day, every day. So just going through those emotions is tough on a really surface level. And then just figuring out how to play someone who is so different from me, but still find in me the pieces of myself that I can put in this guy. And it was a lot of intellectual work for the first few months. And then hopefully, if I do my job right, when you start shooting, you forget all that and hope that all the important stuff sticks in and comes out. I have like pages and pages of this Google Doc about who Steve is. And then as soon as I start shooting, I never look at that document again. Right. I just hope it's all in there, you know? What were those pieces of yourself that you did put into it? Well, I mean, on a very surface level, an immigrant coming to America and wanting to make it in a system that is not made for us to succeed. But then also, I think he has a lot of insecurities that I share, or at least my version of him. Again, I'm not speaking about the real guy. I'm right. talking about this character. So him and I share some insecurities. And I think being aware of him is the hardest part. And I think Steve is not aware of them. And I used to not be aware of them. Like what? I mean, I have imposter syndrome. Like, I feel like I don't belong here. Steve definitely has that in a way that he can't even articulate to himself. And there were times when I couldn't articulate it to myself. I think he doesn't like himself in a very deep and profound way. But I think the problems that I see in him, again, the character as I played him, those core things, the insecurity, feeling like you don't deserve to be where you are, Anger, unprocessed anger, um, inability to feel emotions other than anger, inability to express emotions other than anger, all that kind of stuff is stuff that I'm more aware of and Steve is never aware mm. of. It's funny because Steve is about a million miles away from the character you play in The Eternals. Yes, totally different. This movie star that, that needs to be the center of attention. Yes. And I'm curious, as someone who built a career on commanding a room as a stand-up. How do you turn that wattage down in a performance like this? Uh, <laughs> wattage, that's a very kind word to use. I'm here for kind words. <laughs> on stage, you have to control the room, and you have to control the room without seeming like you need to control the room. It has to feel effortless. Mm -hmm. Steve can never control a room, which is why I think he resorts to <laughs> anger. And I think his displays of anger accomplish the opposite of what he wants to accomplish. He's trying to establish authority when I think those displays of anger actually do the opposite. So that was the hardest thing. In my performance, I'm someone who has to control the room. But in my real life, I am the opposite. 
like I don't want any attention. I find it increasingly difficult to be around people, be around crowds. And you know, in high school, I just wanted to disappear. So I, I completely understand that. I can leave the room if one on one is fine. Get a couple more people in, I start sweating. <laughs> I'll say I get energy from being alone. Some people get energy from other people. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, the fundamental difference between someone like the guy in Eternals and who I really am. And I think Steve spends a whole lot of time alone. Yes, and I think he's very ultimately uncomfortable being alone because he doesn't like himself, so he wants to be with people at least he can like. His dream is to become a kind of Hugh Hefner figure, which Hugh Hefner and Playboy, I think to Steve, were just emblems of how he saw America, a land of money, nice suits, beautiful women, expensive watches. When you started building the character, you had a list of like 10 items, I think, that you imagined were in his bedroom. What were those items? Uh, I had a few things. I had a report card from the eighth grade, not on display. I had a plaster cast of an egg hidden away, a tennis ball wrapped in electric tape, an airline ticket stub, towering inferno, and an uneaten Hershey bar. Those are the ones that I still have the notes on. Why towering inferno? I think he's so obsessed with glamour and Hollywood glamour. I don't think it's a coincidence that he ends up in L.A., and to me, Towering Inferno sort of represents that late 70s kind of big, epic, glossy, fun filmmaking with a bunch of movie stars, you know. Paul and so, Newman escaping from fire. Paul Newman, Steve McQueen. I mean, it's got a really, really great cast. And it's like this sort of fun popcorn disaster movie, you know. It's the kind of movie, I think, that at that scale, India wasn't making at the time. And so to him, I think the glitz of it was what was really, really appealing. Ultimately, all of these are just items that represent an idea of a country that he wants to be part of. That's right. And I'm curious about those items for you growing up in Pakistan. Comic books, video games, films like Ghostbusters and Gremlins. But above all, it seemed like Mad Magazine was what most informed your understanding of the U.S. Right, because you're not just getting U.S. culture, you're getting a reaction, a response to U.S. culture. Yeah, really, really obsessed with Mad Magazine. Just because I thought it was very funny, but it was also a way to experience the movies that I couldn't get. We didn't get everything, you know. And TV shows were much harder to get. You got the TV shows, you got movies. The bigger ones you would get in bootleg VHSs, you know. But we didn't get any official... American releases on home video till like the 90s. Mm -hmm. I believe one of the first ones was Star Trek Generations. Jurassic Park was the first American movie I remember, big American movie I remember playing in theaters. So it was just a way to sort of get American pop culture, which I was fascinated by, and I think a lot of people across the world are fascinated by. And I just, I just thought it was funny. And also, you know, sometimes you'd see naked women in them, drawings of them, but hey, that's, you know, you take what you can get. So some of the films and shows discussed in the magazine wouldn't make it to you, but this magazine would. Yeah, my lens of American pop culture was through Alfred E. Newman. It's almost like your first impressions of these big, massive pieces of art were sometimes processed through parody first. Yeah, I think that's interesting because for a long time, there was a period in my stand-up where a lot of my stand-up was just sort of 
talking about movies, making fun of movies and TV shows and that kind of stuff. And I remember. Uh, yeah, but I'd never put it together until just now. That was like <laughs> my version of Mad Magazine, I guess. I was like, this is what comedy is. You make fun of these things, you know? Yeah, I hadn't put that together, but that all makes sense. Can I sit with that one afternoon when you go to something called Friday Bazaar to retrieve the latest copy of, of Mad Magazine? This is the uh, 1989 October edition around Ghostbusters 2. Yeah, so in Ghostbusters 2, instead of Vigo, they had Ayatollah Khomeini as the bad guy. You know, and I grew up in Pakistan, and he was sort of a revered religious figure. And so that was the first time I was like, oh, wow, there's some like different perspectives on things. And two things that I love are in conflict with each other. I don't know what to make of it. And you're about 11 or 12. Younger than that, probably. What did that do to you? I never really figured it out. I just was like, oh, it like sort of shocked me and shook me. Because I did love American pop culture, and I loved Ayatollah Khomeini, so it was just, I never really reconciled it. I was just like, okay, I guess people have different perspectives on things. Mm. But that idea didn't really, the idea of different perspectives didn't really become part of me until I moved to America. When you talked about your childhood in the past, you said something that you were often told was that the soul was good and the body was bad. What does that mean? It was sort of a way of saying that most things that you really desire are distractions from the good you can do in your life. Just that there's a higher pursuit and that the body, the things the body likes, have the ability to corrupt food, drugs, alcohol, sex, all that kind of stuff. Whereas more intellectual, soul-based pursuits, being a good person, doing good, were the real calling. Did you understand that? kind of divide between the two as a kid? Yes. I knew from the beginning that's what it was. I remember playing Super Mario Kart with my cousins on Super Nintendo and being like, this is too fun to be <laughs> allowed. I remember as a kid being like, this has to be sinful. Really? Yeah. It's just, just so exciting. I remember I think someone hit me, tried to hit me with a red shell and I used a feather to jump over a divide and it hit the other thing. The feeling of elation, I was like, I shouldn't be feeling this. I think this is wrong in some way. <laughs> See, I, I felt the opposite. I was playing the same game, and someone would throw the red shell, and then I'd have the green one, throw it back. Oh, you so throw it back? Yeah. And then I can keep going? Yeah. And I thought, I got to keep doing this. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, I kept doing it for sure. I thought I'd found a loophole. Why did you think it was sinful? Because you thought there was a limit to the amount one could experience pleasure? That's kind of what I thought, yeah. That That's kind of how I was raised. And I was just sort of a weird little, probably introspective. I wasn't lonely, but I wasn't like an outdoor fun, having fun kind of kid. I studied a lot and that kind of stuff. So I sort of had put that together. You weren't a particularly rebellious kid. Not at all. You know, Emily, my wife, was very rebellious. Mm -hmm. I did not have that. So the parts of me that made me different, I really disliked, and I wished I didn't have them. Like which parts? I liked, you know, movies that made me feel weird, I didn't like. Now I like them. So, well, John Waters, I would have been too young for, but I mean, something like that, you know, even some Tim Burton stuff, I'd be like, this makes me feel weird, this is outside, I, I don't like it. Whereas Emily embraced that and was sort of goth, I tried to be normal or invisible. 
When you come to America in 1997, you're 18 years old, you land in Iowa to attend this private college. Did you start to feel like you could comfortably access those different parts of yourself? No, it was kind of a crisis for, for a little while. For the first time, I really understood, like, there are different perspectives on things, there are different ways of doing things. And it doesn't mean that one way is right or that one way is wrong. It just means there are different ways of doing things. And so it was kind of a crisis because I didn't feel like I belonged. But then I also started feeling like I didn't belong back home in Pakistan. And it's that's still something I'm trying to reconcile. It was very, very tough in the beginning. And it continued to be tough for a long time. And it's also, you know, when you're in college, there's all this pressure of like trying to figure out what you're going to do for the rest of your mm -hmm. life, which to me was like this big, looming, scary thing. Not who you are, but what are you going to do? Which really, in America, what you do is what you are. So I was like having all this cultural crisis while also having what I saw as a personal crisis of like, what am I going to be? You had a pretty big fear of public speaking. And to curb this... You decided to take a writing class called Story, Storytelling, and Audiences with Elizabeth Dobbs. I'm trying to picture this because you're a teenager in a foreign country, far away from everyone that you know and love. And then you decide in your first year to make your life somehow even harder Yeah. by taking this class in which you're going to have to do some public speaking. Yeah, I'm going to have to do a performance. It doesn't seem like fear got in the way. It certainly felt like I did. I honestly, if you ask me, how did I have like the bravery or whatever you want to call it to do that? I don't know how I had it. It's one of those things where, you know, you have a moment where you're like, once I sign this, I'm locked in for four months. I have to do this thing at the end. I don't know how I got the courage to sign up for that. I genuinely, genuinely don't. It's the same as like doing open mic for the first time. I don't know how I got the courage to do it. It just felt like... Some part of me really felt like I needed to, because if I didn't need to do it, I would not have done it at all. Right. And I obviously regretted it at many times. But when it was done, when that storytelling class was done and the performance went well. Let's talk about that performance. At the end of the semester, every student has to perform a story. You develop a kind of Twilight Zone-like story. That's right. Can you recount this a little bit? What, what was this? It was a story about a guy who's stuck in a room. I don't remember it really well, but he starts like seeing things and hearing things. And it turns out that he's part of some experiment where they're seeing certain kinds of radio waves and their effect on the human brain, something like that. But it's sort of basically like a Twilight Zone horror story because I love, I've always loved sci-fi and horror. And I wanted to write something like that. And I, I sat, at my desk and I did the story. I remember doing a good job. I remember feeling good about it, but I remember also memorizing it and rehearsing it. I remember specifically being in the shower and saying the story out loud over and over and over and over and just my heart going really, really fast when I was about to start. But I thought it went well. Like I was happy with how it went. I wasn't like, oh man, I got a good grade. So I was really thrilled with the whole thing. But then I didn't really do any public speaking for years after that. But I feel like, I guess maybe there are these times where even though I think of myself, I don't think of myself as a courageous person in any way. I really don't. But there are some moments where I will force myself to get into a situation 
where I'm forced to confront something that I'm terrified of, which is kind of what Welcome to Chippendales was as mm -hmm. well. I'm forced to confront something that I'm very uncomfortable confronting or something that's really out of my wheelhouse. That you transcend your own limitations. I try to what I think of as my limitations, and then I find it really exciting when I'm forced to do it. It's hard, and I regret doing it sometimes, but like with, <laughs> well, at certain points in the process I do, you know, so... When you have a bad set doing stand-up, of course you're like, what the fuck am I doing? Why did I think I could do this? Same with the storytelling class towards the end of the semester. I was like, oh, fuck, here it comes. Why did you do that? And then with Welcome to Chippendales, it was in the months leading up to it where I was like, what if I don't figure it out this time? You know, Every single time I've shot something, I've figured out a way into the character. So there are those moments, but each time I sort of have gone and locked the door behind me and then been like, all right, only way is forward. So I will give myself credit and say that I do put myself in those types of situations. You put yourself in one of those situations at the end of college during your first stand-up set. It was at Bob's, at an <laughs> underground cafe yes. at the college. Yes. When you're rehearsing this set, which I think was around like 30 minutes, yeah, the first one was actually semester one of my senior year, and it was around 30 minutes. Did you practice it in the shower? I'm sure I did, but I think the nerves for that, even though very, very high, were not as high as they were. Like, I have very specific sense memory of being in the shower and memorizing this horror story. Mm -hmm. The other thing, I remember going to the Chinese buffet with my friends right before the performance and just feeling such an amount of dread and, like, my body tightening up and that feeling of, like your throat closing, and you're like, why did I do this? I remember my friend Fred Bukema, we both did stand-up for the first time together. I remember us sitting in a room just doing the material for each other. Mm -hmm. And he's a very funny guy, loves comedy, and he really knew a lot more comedy than I did. But when I did my set, you know, he was like, hey, that was that's really good. And so that gave me a lot of confidence, just because I knew he was kind of a comedy snob. Mm -hmm. So that helped. However, getting on stage was still very tough. Which bits from that first set stay with you? You know, I've tried to find, I had a zip disc with all of them, and I haven't been able to find it. <laughs> I wish I could. The one I remember is that I've always wanted to have like a unit of measurement named after myself, that joke. I'm trying to remember how I got into it. It's like, I want to have a unit of measurement named after myself, like Jules, Newton, Mr. Kilometer. That was the first little punchline. Then like, but I want something cool, you know, like turn the torpedoes up to five Nanjianis. Five Nanjianis, that's too much power. Most people can't handle one Nanjiani. And then I'd smile and look at the audience. And I remember that joke being like, this is a good joke. And... From that set, not much survived, even into like my first time doing open mics in the real world. Barely anything did. However, that did. And that was a joke that I did for a couple of years. So, but that first set gave me so much confidence because I really, it was one of the best sets I've ever had. It was just one of those where I was like, wow, this is what it feels like to be good at something that you love. Is that the first time you felt that? Yeah, that's the first time I felt other than video games, where I was like, I'm pretty good at video games. <laughs> and yeah. It's a completely unmarketable skill. But I remember doing stand-up, walking off, and just standing up a little straighter for the rest of my life, because I was like, I really love this thing, and I think someday I could be really good at it. After the break, more from Kamel Nanjiani. Thank you. 
As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation, with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. With this newfound confidence, you move to Chicago, you start performing across the city, you work as an IT specialist during the day, then at night, you're rolling your eyes at this. This is true. No, it is true. <laughs> it is true. I was almost going to make a joke, and then I didn't, and I was rolling my eyes at myself for thinking to make a joke, but keep going. Okay, go ahead. What's the joke? I'm not going to do it, no, but keep going. No, come on. No, it be better than this. I was just going to pretend like that's a lie and you're being racist. You should have done that. Oh, now, no, now we have to do it. I was never an IT specialist. Who are you thinking of? We're not all the same. But I was. Oh, my God. These are my notes for Hassan Minaj. <laughs> yeah. Was he? He's too <laughs> cool to have ever been an IT specialist. <laughs> oh, now we are keeping this. Um, I'll lean into my racism. That's um, good. Yes, I was. I was an IT specialist. Okay. I moved to Chicago. Yes. And, yes. And you also performed stand-up. I did, yeah. Three to four lot. nights a week. But in 2006, after five years of performing at clubs across the city, you decide that you want to pivot into a more personal style of comedy. You said, I found that a lot of the comedy I was doing wasn't very personal. It was more just observational. What prompted this change in direction? It didn't come from me wanting to do something personal. It just came from me wanting to sound more like myself on stage. So I wasn't like, I want to go up and talk about my insecurities and open up my chest and lay myself bare. I was just very locked into a very specific character and performance on stage. So who was that? 
I was so nervous to get on stage that I sort of started playing that up. So my persona on stage was this like sort of really nervous guy. And I wouldn't get the microphone out of the stand. I would just sort of like make myself small and just sort of do this like nervous guy thing, which really worked. You know, it really worked for me. But I started to feel a little fake on stage. I started to feel, and there were certain things like if something funny happened to me today, my persona does not allow for me to just tell a story. I'm like limiting myself by being locked into this performance. I want to be able to kind of talk about anything on stage. And I was like, oh, for that, I kind of have to be more like myself on stage performance-wise. So it really came from wanting to perform differently. And the comedians I loved, I sort of was realizing that there was no difference between their onstage and offstage personality. So that was the project was, how do I be myself on stage? Now that you've met so many of those comedians that uh, you admired growing up, do you think that's still true? That the dividing line between who they are on stage and who they are off stage, that there's very little difference between the two? I think there's very little surface difference, but there is always a difference between who you are on stage and who you are off stage. And whatever that, obviously people are a heightened version of themselves on stage, you know. And even when I started sort of being myself on stage, it was still a much more confident version of myself on mm -hmm. stage. So there is a difference, but it's not as big as the difference that I had, you know. I th but I think being even a version of yourself on stage is very, very difficult. Who was this new version in 2006, 2007? And what were you diving into? My approach to writing jokes changed that in that it went from me thinking of something funny and doing it rather than, and it changed to me wanting to talk about something and making that funny. So I was like, oh, I want to talk about this thing. How do I talk about it on stage and be funny? Mm. So my writing process completely changed. And I just sort of started projecting a lot of confidence on stage. For a little while, it became very loud on stage. Um, it's hard to imagine that. Very high energy. I did. And then I was sort of readjusting that and becoming more dialed back because I realized that was also coming from nerves, you know. So it was a version of me, but it was just a more confident, sure of himself version of me. It was not an active like decision to be more confident like that. It's just I understood that if I projected that, audiences want to feel safe when you're doing stand up, mm -hmm. you know. I think they want to feel like they're in good hands. And then I did feel really confident on stage. I felt more confident on stage than I felt off stage. Like on stage, I could do things or think about myself in ways or that I had trouble holding on to off stage. The show that you put together, which is kind of parodied in The Big Sick, is called Unpronounceable. When you look back on that, there is a clear confidence that you're putting out there. But how do you think of that show now? I'm very proud of the show. I wrote it. The person I was back then wrote it. In some ways, I needed to do that show to get past to the, like the next stage of me as a person and me as a... I'm a comedian, so I roll my eyes at saying artist, but I don't, I don't know what other word I would use. You roll your eyes at a, at a few different things. <laughs> I, I just... You know, I'm still sort of, as a comedian, you just don't ever want to take yourself too seriously. And so that's what that is. Mm-hmm. However, I stopped doing that show for a reason, and I would not do that show now. You did the show less than 10 times. Yeah. What was it, and why did you stop? I stopped because it was sort of a story of me growing up in Pakistan, coming to America. My parents were in it, and I just realized that 
just because I felt like I needed to tell the story wasn't reason enough to tell it. I didn't feel it was just my story. It was also the story of my family and my parents, and they did not want me to tell the story, and I had to ultimately respect that. I totally get it. And I've also understood since then that it was a little too personal. I know it's weird that years later I did The Big Sick, which is like very, very personal. However, The Big Sick, I'm playing a character going through the, these things, a version of myself. Unpronounceable really was me on stage, being me, telling stuff from my life. There was really no like sheen of artificiality or fiction to it. And, you know, my parents felt like I shouldn't do it. And then that upset me at first, but I, then I completely understood. And, and now I'm more sure than ever that they were right. It wasn't just my story to tell. The show was particularly graphic about some parts of your childhood. It sort of was getting at a lot of the stuff that I was thinking about as a child that perhaps back then I wasn't able to articulate to myself. But it was sort of about that Mario Kart, Cardi type thing, even though that wasn't... I don't think that was part of the show. Right, but it was your way years later of wrestling with this internalized divide that a kid just can't totally process. Yes, it was a way of me trying to understand who I was, what I believed, and just trying to come to terms with it a little bit. This was also, you know, so I decided in 2006 that I wanted to be more like myself on stage. The show happens in 2007, a year later. And Emily, you know, the events of the big sick happened in 2007. So Emily gets sick. She's in a coma. She's in the hospital. She comes out. And within three months of that, I've like written this whole show and I'm, a, and I'm performing it on stage. So I think something that I still don't quite understand, but something about that extremely traumatic personal event made me want to open up certain parts of my life and look at them, things that I've been afraid of looking at. You know, today, the... Big Sick is probably the piece that best captures the kind of many sides of, of you. And, of course, Emily, you two wrote it together, tells your love story that you're alluding to. When the film came out in 2017, it was met with, I'd say mostly, if not, I, I don't remember reading almost any negative review. I'm sure you found them. but Yeah, we, we, we really had kind of a charmed debut. It was very charmed. Yeah. It was charmed. It was. And I remember we were at uh, <laughs> we were at Sundance and the movie had just screened for the first time. I was there. You were there? At you were there screen. the first night? I was there. At the Eccles? Uh-huh. It's a pretty good reaction. Yeah. And you know that. What night, if I was like, eh, I, I, not for me. Everyone else was standing and applauding. <laughs> yeah. I thought I'm gonna eh, sit. Not for me. Yeah. We basically had this extremely charmed experience and there was like a bidding war for the movie. Well, I mean, honestly, could not have gone better, like beyond our wildest. And I think it was Leslie Mann. We were at like a party the next day or something and there wasn't a deal yet, but we knew people were going, kind of wanted it. And she pulled Emily and I aside and she's like, enjoy this. I want you to really enjoy this moment because it's never going to happen again. And at that time, I didn't fully understand what she meant, except that I was like, okay, let's let's actually try and enjoy this because it was really overwhelming and it's easy to just go from thing to thing to thing with like, you know, swirlies in your eyes. But I understood what she meant later. It's never going to be like that again. And it's weird to have the sense memory of that as your first big experience in the film industry. Because it's, it's just, I mean, nobody has that experience, you know? That's a very rare thing that happens. 
and haven't topped it. It's fascinating and probably good that she said that, but it's also a little haunting. Yes. In the moment, I was a little bit like, what do you mean it'll never happen again? What does that mean? I completely understand just because it just doesn't happen. And I've experienced it not happening since then. Um, <laughs> I have. <laughs> I mean, go to my Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> no, don't, 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 don't go. Oh my um, God, Stuber. <laughs> um, <laughs> Men in Black. Well, which one? How many? Was that five? No, three. I think that was four. Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't really watched them all. The reason I brought this up in thinking about that film, beyond the audience reaction and, and the momentum and the fervor around the movie, I wonder more about the personal nature of the project. Because it is the story of you and Emily. And the both of you did put so much of yourselves into it. Mm-hmm. And you had this quote around that. You say, I wouldn't change anything about that experience, but you are taking apart your personal life. And in telling that story, you're sort of losing that story. You're taking traumatic things that have happened to you, sharing it with someone, and hopefully the negative power that these things can have over you is being dissipated. Or you sort of really start giving pieces of yourself up, and that has unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. What were those unintended consequences? You're just giving up your private life. You're giving up your story, and people feel sort of empowered to ask you how your relationship is with your parents or how Emily's doing and that kind of stuff. And it's all stuff that now I am very, very, very cognizant of the parts of myself that are just for me and Emily and my family. Having the divide between personal and public is so, so important to me now. The big six sort of presented us as this thing and it just made it so that people felt like they knew us, which is kind of the purpose of what I do anyway. But they also felt empowered to ask very personal questions. It's sort of a version of the thing I felt after Unpronounceable, which was, I just don't want to be that naked anymore in front of people. I think the very proud of the one-man show I made. I'm very proud of the big sick. However, it takes its toll on me as a human being in my relationships. And I have to prioritize those. I have to prioritize my happiness and Emily's happiness and my family's happiness and not give a pound of flesh to be able to do what I do. I think there are ways to give pieces of yourself in ways that aren't that nakedly personal. How did it take a toll? Well, for one thing, what was interesting, I said there, I don't know how long ago I said that, that hopefully these traumatic events don't hold power over you anymore. That was three years ago. Completely untrue sort of realized in the pandemic that both Emily and I, the stuff we went through for the events of the Big Sick, are still very much a part of us individually and our relationship. So even though we processed it on some level, there's still a lot more work to be done. When we made the Big Sick, I was like, all right, we've dealt with that and moved on. And then you realize, no, you, you really haven't. You've only just started scratching the surface of the effects of that event. So that was one way it took its toll in that I got complacent and thought I was done with that stuff. I just want to protect myself from, I think people's relationship with celebrity right now is unnerving. I just mean people feel like they really want to know the people, you know, and I don't want that. I want to be private. I know it's weird. I'm here talking about personal life, but 
there are certain things that I won't talk about anymore. And I didn't have that as a intentional thing before. Yeah, people's relationship with celebrity is really like, what is it called? The parasocial thing? Like, that's a very real thing. Mm -hmm. I don't think you're meant to be in relationships with that many people. So like I'm on Twitter, I have 3 million followers, right? And if I tweet something and I look at the responses, even if they're all positive, I'm not made, nobody's made, I don't think, to have that much conversation or that much response all at once, even if it's all positive. It like sort of fractures you. Mm -hmm. It's funny because... You know, you and I walked around Silver Lake five years ago, and I was thinking about that on the drive over here. How much has happened in this country, around the world, Yeah. in my life, and I'm sure your life, and I'm sitting with you now, and I can feel, I can feel the difference. I can feel the weight of the last five years. Because when we spoke, the movie hadn't come out yet. Mm-mm. And I don't think you knew what was going to come. How the hell could you know what was going to come? It sounds like, it feels like you unwittingly signed up for something you maybe never thought you signed up for. That's exactly right. I never assumed this would be part of it. And I'm not complaining, you know. I'm very, very happy to talk to you. This, was, this is great. I had signed up for getting to make movies and TV shows and telling stories, and that's wonderful. What I have not signed up for is having my personal life be part of that. I'm trying to pull back slowly from it. Just don't want my life and Emily's life to be part of our brand, but it's this weird thing where because most people found us for the first time, they met us as a married couple, and through the big sick, so it seems like our personal life is part of my career. Our marriage is part of my career. It's part of her career. But listen, when I'm walking down the street and people say, recognize me and say nice things about me, that's awesome. Thank you. I'm glad that it did something, that you connected with it. However, as someone who is inherently a little bit awkward, I just sometimes don't know what to say to people. That's what I mean. And then I start judging myself. And then I have an interaction. I'm like, Emily, was I okay? Was I nice to that person? That kind of stuff, you know? I don't want to be a dick to people. But I just don't know how to really negotiate all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm sort of in the midst of trying to figure that out, which I think is what you're feeling and getting at. I'm more cognizant than ever of keeping parts of myself just for myself. It's not something that I thought of, which is, which is hard because I started as a stand-up and the whole thing is to like lay yourself bare. Mm -hmm. And now... I don't value that as much. Mm -hmm. And I'm a little scared of it. I'm very scared of being a known person. <laughs> I'm curious then, because on the other side of the big sick, after all this that we've been talking about, you've transformed yourself for these roles in The Eternals, Obi-Wan, and now Chippendales. And I wondered if that physical transformation was your way of moving beyond who you were and into who you now want to be. Well, it's also interesting because the physical transformation, if anything, it led to people being more interested in my personal life and making sort of judgments about how I've changed and what I am now. I see people saying all the time, they're like, he's not funny anymore. I'm like, no, I'm still just as funny as I was because I don't see myself any differently. I just look a little different. It somehow opened me up more. The other thing about it is there are parts of me in Obi-Wan and Eternals. However, 
the parts of me that are in Welcome to Chippendales are much more dangerous or like they're scary for me, you know? Like what? Just like the insecurity, how I feel about myself, parts of me that I don't like myself, how I feel about my body, how I used to feel about my body, how I feel like I don't belong, how I feel like I don't deserve good things, that kind of stuff. It's part of that character. So even though now there are many, many layers between me and him because he looks different from me, he sounds different from me, he dresses different from me, that's great. But when I'm like putting something like that out there, that's to me a great personal risk because now I'm really, really more than Eternals or Obi-Wan, which I love. That's more of a performance in some ways than this is. So it's a risk, you know, but I want to do it because I want to like grow as an actor and an artist. And it's it's important to me to be like really good at this and to take risks and be able to do the things that my heroes do. I mean, the stuff I love, that's what they do, right? I mean, I, I think of like Robin Williams as someone who started as a comedian and then, yes. But the people you love were often terribly naked in their art. And that's the thing we keep going back and forth on. Yeah. Which is, where is that line for you? What I would love to be is, through my work, be naked and have that be all I present to the world. Like for The Big Sick, for instance. I'm comfortable making that movie. Here's the movie. Watch it. No follow-up questions about the events of that movie. <laughs> like, to me, that's the most, that's the perfect, that's the perfect version of it. That's the perfect version. Yeah. One, because I'm not, I don't ultimately know the things to say to make someone watch something that I just did, except that I'm very proud of it. You know, so welcome to Chippendales. I can say I'm very proud of it. That I, doesn't work anyway. It doesn't work, right? So that's all I can do. All that's what that I mean. that works is that we have a conversation that actually will matter to people and that they will see themselves in. You can't, how many times have you seen people go on all the talk shows and the movie makes negative money. I mean, oh, it just, it, more often than not, I've been done there. It. You've I've done, done it. it. I've done it. Yeah. I've, I've done over and over like a hundred talk shows, and 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 nobody goes to see the thing. Because but then it, what does? Like an open conversation. But then why would an open conversation, which I, by the way, I'm very thrilled to be doing this with you. How would that make people go see my TV show? <laughs> well, I'm, I don't want to explain the whole thing on here because it's. But you, it, but you believe it. I'm not here. To sell your show. That's right. But I do think we do 52 episodes a year. We have maybe 12 actors on a year. I think us saying, you're doing something interesting. Yeah. I'm not here to boost Hulu's numbers. I, I Yeah, but, I, and I completely I, appreciate that. But I think if we're having a conversation about the art, which we've had a lot of in this, I do think people say, oh, that was really interesting. Like, I want to... He put a lot of himself into that. I wonder what that is. He had a physical transformation. I wonder what that looks like. There are parallel... I mean, I think... I mean, I'm going to cut this part out of the interview for sure. You are. This part right here. I'll keep okay. some of it. I think it's but, in, I think it's very interesting. Yeah, I do I think, don't think uh, you should cut it out. I think this is fantastic. Okay. I really think you should keep it in. Because what we're doing is having a conversation about, for me... When I saw you on my schedule, I was excited to talk to you because I know what you do and you have these very thoughtful conversations. But I'll be honest, I look at my schedule and that's very rare for me to have that. Sometimes for me, it feels I have all this press, which I'm obligated to do because I do very much love the show and I want people to watch it. However, I don't know if doing this press makes anybody watch anything because I've done all this press before and people haven't gone to see the thing. 
You know what I mean? What I've gotten out of press is sometimes interviews like this where I'm like, okay, that wasn't press. That was something else that I can be like, all right, so, so I did something that day. Most times I do press. At the end of the day, I'm like, I'm exhausted and I feel like I've done nothing. So this is different. So I guess I have to take these kinds of things as the end in itself and not as a means to boosting Hulu's numbers. I think you summed it up. Okay. And in many ways, as we end, I do think of the show as a kind of time capsule of where you and, and a little bit where I am in this yeah. moment. And I have these two big questions for us. For us, I mean, for you. Yes. <laughs> Which is that in the beginning of the episode, we played a clip from the show. Welcome to Chippendales. It's on Hulu, just in case people yeah. are wondering. Boost those numbers. It's <laughs> <laughs> the kind of plug I do for you. Thank you so much. But in that, in that scene that we watched, we see Steve being offered the job of general manager of managing all these gas stations across Los Angeles. And Steve says, yeah, I did want to one day own an, or run a gas station. That was my dream when I came here. But that was seven years ago. My goals have changed. I have changed. And when I watched that scene, I couldn't help but think of you in those lines. Mm -hmm. And I wonder where or if you saw yourself in those lines of dialogue. Honestly, not directly until this very moment, until you said it. However, I remember the feeling of doing those lines and them feeling very near to me, but I had not connected it to the ways in which I have changed and the ways in which the things I want to do in my career have changed. That's sort of like the weird magic of acting sometimes. Like I just saw this clip with Steven Spielberg I forget who was interviewing him. And they said, you know, your dad was a computer scientist, your mom was a musician, or the other way around. And they're like, the end of Closing Cards of the Third Kind, they're making music with computers. And he's like, yeah, I didn't put that together until just now. I think that's the beauty of storytelling. Sometimes you don't understand the things that come out of you until later. I always liked that speech. There are certain speeches you have to prepare and certain speeches you don't. I did not have to prepare that speech. I was like, I'll just go say this and I'll know it'll feel real. But I, it wasn't until now. At first, my goal was to do the funny bone in Des Moines. I was like, if I can like host that show, that's my success. That's Des Moines, Iowa. In Des Moines, Iowa. First comedy club I went to, funny bone. I was like, great club. I was like, I want to just be that guy in the white knockoff Nikes on stage. But you know, things change, opportunities change, and what you're capable of changes too, hopefully. What's the goal now? The easy stuff to say would be career stuff, you know, which would be, I wanna do more stuff like Welcome to Chippendales. That's more dramatic. I wanna, again, as a cliche actor, really wanna direct. I wanna be better about the decisions I make career-wise, but I think as a human being, I wanna be less judgmental of myself. I want to cut myself a break more. I want to be more in the moment. I want to be more in the present. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better son. And I'm saying these things and they sound vague, but to me, they're specific. They're specific things that, you know, I don't want to get into specific ways in which I want to be a better son to my parents and specific ways in which I want to be kinder to myself. I feel like the last couple of years is the first time I felt like a grown up even though I'm well into my 40s now, 
three years ago before the pandemic, I never felt like a grown-up. Now I feel old <laughs> and I feel proud of being old. So I feel like I just want to feel older in 10 years. Mm. Well, my last question for you. We've been talking about what it means to be an artist, a human, an immigrant, all these things that you've been trying to grapple with since going to the Funny Bone in Des Moines. I was thinking about this quote. You said, it's difficult to hold on to your identity in a land where your identity is not valued. And I was thinking, are these pieces of art that you're making now, whether it's Chippendales or Little America or whatever you do next, is it your way of presenting in part your story, but also the story of an immigrant coming to America, living in America? Is it a way of honoring them and yourself with some kind of complexity? Definitely. Although I don't approach these things knowing that. I just have to. When I'm making good decisions, I'm sort of going with my gut. When you sort of hear or read something and you're like, I have to be a part of that. And it isn't until later that you realize why. So I honestly wasn't like, I want to do something that humanizes the the stories of immigrants and says that they're not a monolith and that, you know, sort of the trauma porn that is associated with a lot of immigrant stories in American pop culture. I want to change that narrative. I didn't think that. I was just like, oh, this is like a fun show. But it is true that you felt that here in America, your identity was not valued. To be honest, the way I felt about that has changed a lot in the 20 years I've been here. Mm. I talked to my mom about this a lot because she came here long after me and she sort of the political winds have really carried her around in terms of how she feels about her belonging here. And I will say, I feel a little more optimistic about it now than I did a month ago. Why is that? I thought I was walking around and that most of this country saw me as a bad guy. I've had racist experiences recently, you know. In Beverly Hills, a woman told me to go back to my country, mm. like recently. So I had this feeling that I was in this bubble where I was accepted and felt like I was a part of this country, but that most of the country didn't want me here and did not see me as valuable or as American and didn't see my mom as valuable or as American. But turns out that's blissfully inaccurate that the people who think of me as that as not belonging here, it's a smaller number than I realized. It's still bigger than it should be. But I feel a little more like I belong here. I feel a little more optimistic about the direction we're headed. You know, I'm generally a very optimistic person. I always have been. However, the last few years, it has been hard for me to be optimistic. I felt a sense of dread, feeling like at some point I me and my family may need to escape the country. I've really felt that. And now I'm hoping I can continue to call it home. Well, I'm hoping uh, for that too. I thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for talking to me. This was, this was wonderful. Kamel Nanjiani, so long. Great. Was that okay? Yeah. Yeah? More than okay. okay. Are you okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm good. You know, this is your realm. I'm... <laughs> That's our show. 
Special thanks to Jonah Rosenblatt, Adrian Moscovici, the team at Hulu, and of course, Kamel Nanjiani. You can watch the first three episodes of Welcome to Chippendales now on Hulu. To learn more about his previous work, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I'd recommend our episodes with Judd Apatow, Jonathan Majors, Hiro Mirai, Jenny Slate, Abby Jacobson, Nick Offerman, Tessa Thompson, and Pedro Pascal. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to support TalkEasy by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy. You can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Clarice Guevara and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editor is Lindsay Ellis. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Our illustrations are by Trisha Shenoy. Photographs by Maria Alvarez. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gabrzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paulina Suarez. I'd also like to thank our team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julie Barton, John Snars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with Dev Hines, a.k.a. Blood Orange. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.